everyone. Welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm again uh, joined here today by my colleague, Dr. Jeff Payne. Hi, Jeff. Hi, everyone. So I have brought Jeff back into our studio, which is just really a room with a table in it, um, to talk today about Defoe. And the reason, or Daniel Defoe, I should say, and the reason that we wanted to talk about Defoe today is because it is 300 years this year since the publication of Robinson Crusoe. And we'll get to why Robinson Crusoe is important and interesting besides corn um, <laughs> later, later on in this, in this podcast. But first of all, Jeffrey. Yes. Who is Defoe and why should we care? Well... I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, look, I think one of the reasons for me that Defoe is such an interesting figure is because he lived a long life. He lived a life that was very diverse. Um, he pursued a number of different careers. By the time he came to write his first novel, Robinson Crusoe, um, in 1719, he was already 59 years of age. So he you know, had, I never realised he was that old when he first started. Yeah, yeah so he was born in 1660, mm. which is the same year as Charles II was restored to the throne in England um, following the collapse of the Cromwellian Commonwealth. Um, he lived through hugely diverse political times. Um, he lived through the unsettlement around the succession following the death of, Jane, of, of Charles II. Mm -hmm. He lived through um, the Glorious Revolution. He lived through the reign of Queen Anne, um, the reign of William III, reign of Queen Anne. Mm -hmm. He saw um, the unrest around the, Han the Hanoverian succession. He saw the first Jacobite rebellion. Um, he saw the rise of Horace Walpole. He saw... Yeah. Uh, all of these major political events in England. And he didn't just see those events, but he participated in them in various ways. And he held a variety of different careers which positioned him in, in really interesting ways towards um, what was going on in the world. Um, and it's kind of surprising because he's also... A nobody. Mm. Um, his father was a butcher, mm -hmm. um, a fairly successful, well-to-do butcher. But still a butcher. But still a, a working butcher, man. Yeah. A working man. Mm -hmm. um, a gilded man. So the butcher's guild was an important guild mm -hmm. in London. Um, they were reasonably well off, but they were also dissenters. Mm -hmm. And because they were dissenters, um, during the time that Defoe was growing up, um, dissenters were part of the marginalised population of England, along with Catholics mm. and Jews and other non-high church Anglicans. Mm. Um, dissenters were held to have been at least partially responsible or largely responsible for the Cromwellian the civil experiment, mm -hmm. for the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, for the execution of the king's father. And as such, they were heavily marginalised politically. Mm -hmm. um, dissenting Protestants were not allowed to attend universities. And they this is why a lot of them went to America. This is why a lot yeah. of them went to America. This mm -hmm. is part of the whole reason why there's such a strong dissenting tradition in America, because... Mm -hmm. They were forced out from mm. England. They couldn't live quietly in pursuit of their own beliefs mm. in England. If you were a dissenter in England, you needed to perform an act of conformity once a year, which meant that you needed to attend a ceremony of the Church of England to show your allegiance to the Church and therefore to the King. Mm. <clears throat> now, for many dissenters, this was a really problematic and some chose not to conform, others chose to conform. But it, even amongst, <clears throat> so amongst the high church, they felt that it wasn't enough. Amongst dissenters, they felt it was too much. And it caused a great deal of tension. And the political life and the religious life of the time 
with intricate detail. Yeah, <coughs> um, pretty much the same. So one couldn't separate these things. So Defoe receives an education um, at the Newington, Newington Academy um, run by Charles Morton, Morton, which in the end is perhaps, some people argue, is a better education than what he would have received at the public universities anyway. Um, a little like Keats, as we talked yeah. about in, in, in our um, podcast recently, he was exposed to the writings of figures like John Bunyan that he wouldn't have been exposed to had he been attending one of the, the classic universities. Mm. And we can see from what we get in a novel like Robinson Crusoe how that kind of exposure to that kind of literature contributes to, to what he does when he comes to write novels. But of course, as we've already said, novel writing doesn't come until really, really late in his life. Mm. Um, he's only 25, 23, when Charles II dies, and is succeeded to the throne by his brother James, who is a Catholic. Big problem. Big problem. <laughs> Huge political unrest. Defoe is one of the many, many in England who rankled under the idea of a Catholic monarch, um, the fears that they would be returned to um, papal slavery and also become a satellite of the French Republic because the, the Stuarts, during their time in exile, had lived in France. And they were always very closely tied. They were closely tied. James had a French wife. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are... Um, fears that England is going to lose its autonomy, mm. lose its Protestant identity, mm. and be enfolded back into um, Catholic Europe, which they strongly resented and resisted. Defoe being an idealistic and um, hot-headed <laughs> young man, decides that he's going to join the rebellion of the Duke of Monmouth. Now, mm. the Duke of Monmouth is Charles II's illegitimate son, mm -hmm. um, who comes over from uh, Europe with practically no army, um, but has decided that he's going to take the throne from um, James II. And he raises an army of around 4,000 men. Unfortunately, they're all peasants who have no arms or armour, or experience. Or experience. Mm. Monmouth is unable to get any of the gentry on side. Um, and so they suffer a calamitous um, defeat at the Battle of Sedgemoor. Monmouth does not come to a nice end, does he? And most of the people who are present mm. are arrested. Mm -hmm. Monmouth is beheaded mm -hmm. <laughs> um, following a trial. Um, 1,400 participants in the rebellion are tried at what have become known as the bloody assizes um, under the, the, the hanging judge, um, George Jeffries. And most of those tried, some 1,100, are sentenced to death. Now, in the end, only about 300 of them were executed. The majority of them had their sentences commuted to transportation to the colonies of the West Indies, which is where at that time England was sending its criminals because they needed slave labour and it was too difficult at that moment for them to procure slave labour from Africa because the Spanish had control of the, <laughs> the slave market. Um, so a lot of Defoe's um, Confederates are transported. Um, and this quite possibly influences Defoe's, some of Defoe's later interests in mm. the process of the transportation of criminality of all of these things. Somehow, and we don't know how, Defoe doesn't get arrested or tried. He, man he manages to escape all the criminations from his involvement mm. um, in the battle. Um, it's one of those mysteries that there's not sufficient evidence to suggest. Yeah. Um, it's possible that his father knew someone yeah. who could pull some strings, um, but really we, we don't know. Um, he was supposed to be becoming a minister. 
he was educated with the idea of him becoming a preacher in the, 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 the Presbyterian church. He seems temperamentally unsuited to that. He does. Well, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, yeah. again, to be a feisty, politically active um, man mm. who has a gift of the gab. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, actually was really, really useful for a preacher. That is true. Um, at the time, sermons were the best-selling genre. Yeah. Of, of, um, yes, I'm, I am imposing yes. my 21st century That's view right. of ministers so, on to So her. he probably yes. actually would have made a pretty good mm-hmm. preacher, um, but he considered himself to be temperamentally unsuited. Right. And instead wanted to pursue an interest in trade. Um, and so he did. Mm-hmm. He, um, he, he set up life as a merchant. He married a, a daughter of a wealthy merchant. Um, got some money mm-hmm. um, through the, the process of marriage and set himself up in business. Um, when he published Robinson Crusoe, he was satirised by Charles Gilliam, who, um, who wrote a book which was called The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of D slash D slash, which means Daniel Defoe, yeah. comma, of London, comma, Hosier. Right. So put we, him in his place. Put him in his place. Mm-hmm. We need to know that this man is... Somebody who sells socks mm-hmm. and stockings. stockings. Um, he's reasonably successful up to a point, and then he goes bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, not once, but twice. <laughs> um, although the second time ties in with the political facet of his life, which kind of emerges in the 1690s. Now, with the glorious revolution of 1688, Defoe is beside himself with joy. No more um, Catholics? No more Catholics. A Protestant king. He is one of the throngs who rides out to greet William upon his triumphal entry into London um, to cheer him on in his support. And he becomes a fervent advocate for um, William III. Later in his life, he was declaiming <clears throat> that he became a spy on behalf of William and acted as a secret agent on his behalf. This is unverifiable and most likely is untrue. Um, Defoe Which was thinking, an maybe. imaginative man who liked <laughs> to create lots of stories about himself and this is one of the stories that most commentators now think is probably untrue. Mm-hmm. But what it does tell us of is his um, devotion to William and what William stood for as a monarch. Um, it's during the time that William is on the throne that Defoe really starts to begin to engage in writing political pamphlets and poems. He was a he was a um, aspiring poet. Um, he is he's often it's often critically suggested that his favourite poet was Rochester, <laughs> um, which is kind of surprising given that Rochester is. Uh, a, a libertine, he's yeah. associated with the court, the, the, the luxurious, corrupt court, and the most excessive corrupt yes. you know, in the corrupt court of Charles II. Yeah. Um, but his satirical, parodic style mm. is something that Defoe built on and used a lot in the poetry that he produces um, during the time. Um, in response to attacks upon William's um, monarchy, um, which are based upon the idea of his foreignness, the fact that he's a foreigner occupying the position of the throne of England. Um, Defoe writes the poem which, for the most part of his life, defined him. It's called The True Born Englishman. Mm. And this poem um, is talking about the way that the English are a mongrel race, as he calls them. Um, there is no such thing as a true-born Englishman. They have been conquered so many times by the Romans, by the Normans, by the Angles, Saxons. by the Saxons, by the Vikings, yeah. um, that they are the mongrel race of all the dregs of Europe. You know, I really feel like this is something that, that 21st century people could stand to reread. <laughs> well, it's a really topic. It remains yeah. a topic of all Defoe's poetry. Mm. It remains the most readable because it's in that very early... Um, 18th century, late 17th century, didactic, overblown style. Yeah, why make my point um, one time when I could make it 17? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. But because it is so topical and it's funny. Yeah. Like it's having a, it's having a, um, presenting a fairly savage satire mm. upon those xenophobic English who want to sell themselves as being representative of something which 
doesn't exist. Wow, well, this is the poem for the Brexit era. <laughs> it really is. It yeah. really is. Mm. Um, it's wildly popular. And for most of the rest of his life, when Defoe acknowledged the publication of a work, it was by putting on it by the author of the true-born Englishman right. so rather than anything part. else. That's yeah. his calling card. It's yeah. the thing that he becomes known for. Um, the death of William changes the political landscape. When Queen Anne assumes the throne, um, there is a tightening of the um, freedoms that had been allowed to dissenters during the reign of William. And the high church Tories, as they had become known by that time, um, who were supporters traditionally of the Stuarts, um, but later reassociated re themselves with the high church position, um, became the main advisors for Queen Anne, and Defoe became politically othered. Whether he knew it or not, he didn't quite have his um, senses attuned to what he was going to be allowed to get away with. Yeah. And in 1703, I think, two or three, I can't remember exactly, he writes a pamphlet called The Shortest Way with the Sentence. And what it is, it's a satirical parody where um, he adopts the voice of a high church bishop who is talking about the best way to deal with dissenting Protestants. And he hyperbolizes the argument and reduces them to points of absurdity. The problem is he publishes it anonymously, of course, and it's a really successful piece. And people both from the dissenting church and from the high church think that it really is by a high church bishop. And it is wildly uh, accepted. So people read it straight? Or they kind of read, read it straight. The majority, yeah. a, a lot of people read it straight. So and people have been misreading And then when the deception is revealed, <laughs> yeah. they're very angry at the deception, oh, particularly yeah. those people who are powerful in the government yes. at the time. So Defoe has got some powerful noses at the joint and he is, an arrest warrant is issued for him. Um, it is from the arrest warrant for the true-born Englishman that we have the only description of Defoe as a man and it's not very flattering. He's short, he's pockmarked, he's got a snubby nose, he's, <laughs> um, he has brown hair which he covers with a, a straggly wig um, it's it's not a very flattering description. But then, but would you expect it to be like he's he's beautifully <laughs> handsome, he has long flowing locks? Yeah, indeed, not. Yeah. So and so, it's not necessarily a very yes. um, objective objective <laughs> description of him. Although it is meant to give people enough information to apprehend him. For a really ugly guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he is arrested. Mm -hmm. He is tried. Um, he's convinced um, that if he places himself upon the mercy, pleads guilty and places himself upon the mercy of the court that he'll be treated leniently, but he isn't. Mm -hmm. It's a, something of a show trial and it's a show um, sentence he's given. So he's given a really hefty fine. And he's also sentenced to stand in the pillory mm -hmm. for three days. Now, when we think of standing in the pillory for a few days, we think, oh, well, that's, that's not too bad. But at the time, it could be, it could be a sentence of death. Depending on how the crowd responded to you, they threw enough things at you. If they threw enough mm. hard, sharp things at you, yeah, you could be killed. In the it did happen, yeah. not all the time, but with a great degree of frequency. You could certainly be very seriously injured. Mm. Now, Defoe is lucky. Um, during the time that he's awaiting his sent the, the sentence to be carried out. He writes a hymn to the pillory, which is another parodic verse, which again achieves a great deal of success. It's another um, kind of a, a ballad-like um, parody um, celebrating the, the pillory and what it does. And by the time he stood in the pillory, the citizens of London 
um, Lord, they festoon his pillory with flowers, oh. they drink toasts to him, party. Good result for Defoe in terms of his experience in the pillory. Yeah. Bad result because the powers that be are really pissed. Yeah. And as a result, he gets locked in Newgate. Mm. Now, during this time, his business, his successful brick tile-making business, is floundering and founders. And so this is where his second bankruptcy comes about, during the time that he's incarcerated in Newgate. Um, everything is going wrong in his personal life. Defoe was married, as I've said before. Um, his wife and he had eight children, six of whom he lived to adulthood. So he had an wow. extensive yeah. family and a lot of responsibilities. Mm. And as a result, he accepts an offer from Robert Harley, who is an up-and-comer, at the time he's Speaker of the House, but later he would become the Chief Minister under, under Anne. And he agrees to work for Harley as a pamphleteer and as a spy. Now, he really does work okay, for Harley finally, spy. He's finally <laughs> achieved his goals. So we don't know whether he did or didn't yeah. work for William as a spy. Probably he didn't. But he certainly did. But he certainly did work for Harley. Harley. There is a lot of correspondence between them that exists. There is a lot of reports that he sent back on various matters. And he also became the mouthpiece for the Tory establishment on certain issues. He didn't completely abandon his principles, but where he was able to find room to become mouthpiece for... Because that's quite um, a shift, working for the high church. That's, that's quite a shift. Yeah. Um, the main thing that he does is he establishes a journal a periodical journal which begins in 1704 and runs for nine years to 1713. And during most of its existence, he's writing three issues per week on his own. Which is quite a hefty That's a job. lot of writing. Yeah, massively. He's also writing loads of other pamphlets and tracts um, the complete works of Daniel Defoe, which have been assembled um, by Chateau and Lindis in the, the UK, um, extends for around 40 volumes. <coughs> Very long. Of which 10 are his novels, and the remainder are... Have you read it all, Jeff? Uh, Hand on Heart? No. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone? Not Probably. Even, not even close. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot, he, and he writes on all manner of issues. Yeah. He writes a lot on economic matters. He writes a lot on casuistry. He becomes something of an agony uncle. He writes um, advice columns for people about how to act according to certain principles. He writes advice books for young ladies and for young gentlemen. Um, what do I do if I break up? <laughs> <laughs> Detailed. What would the Bible say? Yeah. Is usually the oh, first dear. point of yeah. call, right? Yeah. So it's a it, it's very firmly based in his religious upbringing, but he's also he's a very economically minded man. There's a lot of practical advice. There's um, advice books for speculators um, in trade and in um, industry and in finance. Um, he covers a whole raft of issues. He becomes really importantly involved in the government's attempt to pass the Act of Union, mm. which is the Act of Parliament that combines the kingdoms of England and Scotland and Wales officially into Great Britain. Into Great Britain. Mm. Um, this is quite unpopular in Scotland less so in England and Wales, but still a bit unpopular. Mm. And Defoe is sent to Scotland to try and persuade people, but also to send reports back to Harley about who's opposing mm. and who's supporting and how they can best position themselves to achieve the support they need in the Scottish Parliament and in, the, um, and in Scotland. And, and Defoe also writes a number of different... Um, pieces about 
um, the advantages of the Act of Union. He's also a very strong advocate against the Stuarts mm. who continued in France to harbour a desire to return to the monarchy in England. And so he writes things such as, what if the pretender should come? Um, the, you know, what are the political ramifications? And these aren't just um, speculative amateur pieces. They're carefully thought through philosophical, political pieces which argue a position in really careful ways. Lots of reasoned argument mixed in with hyperbolic fear mongering and what have you. He is, is, you know, one of the early opinion leaders in the publishing industry, which of course is burgeoning at the beginning mm. of the 18th century. There's a real flourishing. Yeah. This is the birth of the periodical press, the birth of newspapers, when journals, daily newspapers start to come into existence. And Defoe is one of the first people working as a journalist. During this period of time, he also writes um, his first major piece of journalism, which is um, now called The Storm. It's still in print today. It's, it's been in print pretty much throughout the more than 300 years since it was published, which is a, an account of um, the effects of this great, enormous storm that battered the south of England for a week in November of um, 1709, I think it is, mm. 1710. I don't remember the exact date. Mm. Um, but um, it's lauded by some as the first piece of science journalism ever to be written in English. People like to yeah. identify first, and Defoe is quite often given a lot of those yeah, accolades yeah. first, even though all of those accolades are contestable, and we might talk about the first novel thing yeah. shortly. Um, but anyway, Defoe is active in all these things. Throughout this whole time, um, he is reporting to Harley. He's writing on his behalf. Now, with Harley's overthrow, with the death of Queen Anne, there is, he fall, he's kind of out of favour again. The Whigs are in with the ascent of the new Hanoverian monarchy under George I, and Defoe is kind of let off the leash a little bit to pursue his own interests. And so in the latter part of the 17-teens, he starts to pursue, he, he leaves off writing the review, he starts to pursue a, a career more of his own publishing interests. And this culminates finally at the age of 59, as I've already said. With living the a very full life. Living yeah. a very full life with the publication of... Um, Robinson Crusoe. I mean, there's lots of things that I've left out. Well, oh, no, no. In the I know. He's but, involved yeah. in a lot of things. But he so is. That's, you know, kind of what he goes through, this hugely full life, before we come to the production of what today is probably his most well-known yeah. work. Can you read the title for us? Because the title sure. is wild and is a great example <clears throat> of the, the fine art of the 18th century title where one must summarise the entire plot in yes. a title. So just in case you don't know what this book is about, yes. here we have <coughs> the novel that is published. Now, of course, this isn't acknowledged to be by the front. No. So here's the title page. The Life and Strange Surprising Adventure of the Robinson Crusoe of York Mariner, who lived 18, 20 years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America near the mouth of the great river Orinoque, having been cast on shore by shipwreck wherein all the men perished but himself, with an account how he was at last as strangely delivered by pirates, written by himself. Yes, so it's supposed to be by. So, so one of the first acts of fiction that we come to in the, the, the novel is the idea of this being an autobiographical history, a, a historical account of a real person who has experienced these things. Um, there are, again, schools of criticism that like to read Robinson Crusoe as a kind of an allegory for Defoe's life. Right. Um, he certainly calls it himself an allegoric history. Mm. Um, 
But the way that allegory functions in the narrative is hugely uneven. And of course, there is no verifiable link between what Crusoe undertakes and what happened to Defoe in his life. No. Defoe was never a mariner. No. He <laughs> never was... Stranded on an island for 28 years. He, he never yeah. left England, so far as we know, mm. let alone set up plantations in Brazil, enslaved <laughs> in Africa, yeah. cast away on a desert island for 28 years, mm. and all the rest that, that, that comes with it. Um, for those people who only remember Crusoe either from adaptations or from childhood um, memories of abridged versions of the text, I was certainly one of these readers. The desert island is the thing that looms large, and yet it is not the only thing that happens. No, it isn't the only thing that happens. And in fact, it's importantly surrounded by various other can we go back, though, to the novel? Sure. Because many people have claimed, somewhat problematically, very problematically maybe, that this is the first novel in English. Indeed. Um, we both know that that is a very contestable claim, but why don't you explain why and what's going on with the novel at this time? Okay. So the pointed issue is how we define a novel. A novel. Which is very hard to do. Which is very hard to do. I love doing, making my students do that because it's, it's super hard. As many books or dictionaries or whatever there are that set out to define what a novel is, is how many definitions of a novel there are out there in the world. There are too many to count. There have been since classical times prose writings which have been imaginative, dealing with fictional characters, and so... Written in prose. Written in prose. Mm -hmm. Prose narratives. Mm -hmm. um, and so, therefore, could be called novels. Yeah. Certainly during the early periods of English literature, there is a lot of romance literature, which, again, is written in prose, dealing with fictional characters, fictional characters imaginatively some of which are more realistic than others. Many of them are entirely fanciful. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, novels don't need to be realistic. No. Some people like to use realism as a defining feature of the novel, but if they want to insist upon realism, then they need to cast out a lot of stuff yeah. that we happily... Yeah, all the fantasy fiction. All yeah. fantasy fiction. Yeah, all sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Certainly during the latter part of the 17th century... There is a lot of material being produced, especially by women writers, which looks very much like prototypical novels. Shout out to my girl, Lacra Ben. Shout out to <laughs> Shout out to Yellow River Manley. Yeah. Shout out to Eliza Haywood. Yeah. All of whom have strong claims also mm -hmm. to be counted as being... Um, leaders in the development of the English novel. Yeah. That predate what Defoe does with Robinson Crusoe. So the idea of Crusoe being the first novel is highly problematic, and yet there are still strong schools of criticism that do make such an argument. Perhaps they are less insistent these days mm. on its firstness. Mm. But certainly they want to look at it as the most significant development mm. of either an early novel or a proto-novel. Yeah. Um, there are things about it that are novel-like, mm. but there are also things about it that are not mm. novel-like. Yeah. And so um, the attribution of the text as a novel is something that can endlessly be argued about and of course in this critical world that we live in things that can be endlessly argued about we love because we can endlessly argue about continually <laughs> endlessly argue about um, we can think about what the advantages of thinking of it as a novel or as something else are 
and and look at it in those terms. And I think that you know to the the point where we continue to debate what kind of text Crusoe is. I think the importance of that argument comes comes back to this question of well, what use are we trying to make of the text? How are we setting ourselves up to judge what the text is and does? Um, I don't know. What do you think about the claims of this to be a well? I mean, I think it's it's characteristic of the early novel in in ways where it does surprising things that we don't expect novels to do because we are used to reading you know more conventional kind of you know the novel as a settled kind of form. Um, so there are things about it that are surprising. There are things about it that do look like the modern novel, but there are things about it that don't. But I think that's also characteristic of something like Orinoco, yeah. Biafra Ben, um, and really any of those 18th century novels, which always do, you know, really strange things. They'll, you know, break off in the middle and tell a completely different story and then come back for seemingly no reason. Um, you know, they won't follow the conventional, you know, beginning, middle, end kind of structure that we're used to. You know, there are no chapters. There's no sort of coherent kind of character development. All of this stuff that we insist upon kind of wanting in, in, an, in an early novel aren't necessarily there, but at the same time, you can see, you know, it's an adventure story, really, Robinson Crusoe, in, in many ways. There are surprising things in it that you might not anticipate an adventure story or want an adventure story to have, like, you know, long descriptions of corn, of <laughs> growing corn. Um, but, I mean, you know, more, it's more sense, than just the adventure story, though. Yeah. I think that because, again, people look at the picaresque novel. That's what they want a, to take out of it. That's what they want to take yeah. out. They look at it and they say, well, you know, it is an adventure story and so therefore that situates it over In, here. Yeah, and that's what the, the kind of the adaptations and the abridged and the children's versions pick up. But in fact, far more than the adventure story, it is a story about the growth of an individual. Yeah. And that, of course, is the thing that for many do does link it in with the development of the novel. Yeah, absolutely. We have an individualised character and an who individual... is both representative. Yeah. He is representative of the middle way of life in England. He yeah. is an everyman, he yeah. is a trader and what have you, but he isn't a paragon and he isn't an idealised figure. He's a highly flawed individual. And you can track him over, over almost his whole life, really, because and that's, you know, something that we see in the, you know, all of these named novels, you know, Mole Flanders or, you know, again, by the foe, um, you know, these novels that take a person's life and track it for, if not their whole life, but at least a major span of their life. And that's, that's something we do recognise. I mean, you know, it, it sets it in the, in the vein of those great 19th century novelists yeah. who are unpre, unproblematically novelists, such yeah. as um, Charles Dickens, somebody like David Copperfield, yeah. um, where we have this solid account of the childhood beginnings, the child begets the man, yeah. the man is flawed, um, undergoes trials, um, overcomes the trials, struggles to achieve some kind of new way of seeing the world um, and reintegrates into society in some way. And there is that trajectory, that character arc that Crusoe undergoes. Yeah. Um, there's a lot at the beginning of the text about his family origins, where he comes from, um, his going against the wishes of his father. His, he, he has the opportunity to set up in a very comfortable middle-class life in England where he can live in peace and prosperity without any troubles at all. Mm-hmm. And he rejects that and runs away to sea. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to go to sea, he wants to become a trader. Um, when he first runs away, he is nearly shipwrecked. And we have this kind of um, foreshadowing of the, the later shipwreck, and he is never going to go to sea again. He's been cured of it. He says that a few times. He, he says that yeah. a few times, and he continually yeah. is drawn back. He's this temptation, this drive in with him. And so he is a, a man who is um, tempted by worldly desires and acts upon those temptations. He's a very um, paradoxical figure. He's. Um, those virtues that people tend to accentuate when they think about Crusoe, his resourcefulness, his bravery um, in the face of adversity, his perseverance, are all countered by vices such as selfishness, paranoia. Um, when he washes up on the, the desert island, the deserted island, there's not a living soul. He doesn't see a living soul for 20 years that he's there. 
Um, he is continually paranoid that he's going to be attacked by people, and he's building himself fortifications and defences. Um, there are no wild animals on the island. Now, at first, he doesn't know this, but later on he does know this, and yet he still continues to build more and more fortifications and defences. Now, in the end, they become useful. Um, he is also a great investor for the future. He's got that mercantile, capitalistic mindset where he is always uh, investing, not even for against the future. He's setting up stores so that when calamity comes, when providence turns and a new test is thrown up, um, he has stores in reserve or resources to spare that will be able to help him see it through. Mm. Um, and so that's a strong element of his character. Um, so the virtues are there, but also these negative sides as well are there and played up upon and played out. Um, while he is cast away on the island, we see what appears to be certain types of madness exhibiting themselves. Um, ways of coping with his isolation, but for instance, the, 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 the scene that always comes to mind is after a while of being there, he's kind of set himself up this little farm where he's got a store of animals and he's got this parrot that he talks to and he's got a couple of cats and dogs and what have you. And he imagines himself as king of the court and he holds these great feasts with all the animals in, in present where he's the, the monarch of his domain with all of the animals kind of assembled around him um, and he's conversing with the parrot who converses back to him. Um, and when the parrot converses, there's great um, humour made, not only in the first book, but then in later narratives as well, about the, the way in which the parrot reciting things that he has said back to him becomes a very unsettling experience because it says things to him. Um, poor Robinson Crusoe. That he could only have said. That he could only have said to himself, that kind of reflects back to him um, some of the negative traits yeah. that he kind of wants to sideline in certain ways. Mm. For the majority of the, or for a large part of the early part of the text, he's a very godless man, um, Crusoe. And so there is also a conversion narrative yeah. that underpins the, the text as well. And there is a very um, famous, important conversion scene where he becomes sick and there's a great storm at night and he reads a passage from the Bible and he's struck by uh, a flash from above. His Damascene moment, yeah. Damascene moment. He's touched and he, he converts, he becomes fully um, persuaded of the greatness of um, the divine and the hand of providence active in the world. And so acts according to, to those values. Um, revises his, his behaviours or attempts to, but old behaviours continue to, to come out. He doesn't, he's not an idealised figure at any point in time. And so that again is one of the ways in which as the hero of a narrative, yeah. Defoe is often seen to differ from a lot of other characters in texts that are produced before and around that time because he has the scope for development that is often not afforded to yeah. some of those other characters who remain relatively flat characters. Yeah, they, yeah. No, nobody else has <coughs> Now, part yeah. of the reason for that is long book. It is a bloody long book and there's a lot of corn in it. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of space yeah. for him to undergo those. And it's funny because so many of us come, as you said, to it <coughs> through abridged children's versions or, or you know, um, pitch books or, or, you know, any of its kind of adaptations where, you know, it's just man lands on island, <coughs> you know, does all these things. He makes a farm, he builds a fort, Yeah. he encounters some... He encounters a guy eventually. Cannibals. Yes, can, cannibals, and then adopts and adopts one of the, yeah. the one of the the natives. Yeah. Um, in inverted commas, as is his yeah. as his, um, I don't know what to call him. He's not a slave. He's not a. As, I think he calls him a servant. He kind of sets it up as a yeah. master servant kind of relationship. But, yeah, but he is a slave, really. Yes. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so, I mean, we have this really simplified version, but it's, as you say, it's very long. A lot of it is contemplation. Um, it's something that kind of sits within the tradition of the novel, but it also problematises the idea yeah. of thinking of it as a novel and why some people say, well, actually, 
it's more of an advice book. Yeah. It's more it's more Should in you line ever find with sermonizing. <laughs> yeah. It's more in line with the, the tradition of sermons that Defoe was highly familiar with. And yeah, it's like using the form of the novel in order to give these set pieces, I suppose. Yeah. I mean yeah. he uses biblical paradigms yeah. throughout the narrative. Mm. Um Crusoe figures himself as the prodigal son, he figures himself as Jonah, mm. he figures himself um, as Job mm. um, undergoing trials. And all of these different biblical stories um, function in part in the book. But he's also an apostle. He, yeah. he experiences um, the, 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 the epiphany on the, on the road. Yeah. And, 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 and th- these things, again, some critics say, well, you know what, this functions far more in the allegorical Christian tradition. Mm than it does in the novel. It's almost a pilgrim's progress. It's yeah. almost a pilgrim's progress. It's a pilgrim's progress, maybe less overtly allegorical, yeah. but allegorical nonetheless. Yeah. And, and but it's so, imperfect as an, as an allegory. It, yes. You know, it is. It doesn't function as beautifully as, as pilgrim's progress in that it's so neat and clean. It, it's a messy allegory. Well, and so one of the things also that therefore comes to the fore in arguments about whether it's a novel or not is it's employed of a mixture of genres. Mm. It's a mixed thing. Now, of course, according to the great early 20th century um, Russian critic Mikhail Bakhtin, the characteristic of the novel is that it is heterogeneous. It is mm. mixture. It, it cannibalises, takes up materials from all other forms. Well, and that's evident in the title. And doesn't unify them. Mm. It just allows them it to, allows them to coexist yeah. alongside one another and to signify each in their own ways in conversation with each other. And the, 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 the meaning of any text, of any novel, comes out through the conversation between those different frameworks. Yeah, so even in the title, as I said, you know, we have autobiography, memoir, we have travel writing, we have, you know, sermon, we have biblical we have allegory, allegory, we, we have, have biblical, confession. Yeah. Um, we have journal because a lot of the, yeah. the narrative is presented as Crusoe's journal exactly. on the island. Although and it doesn't try to be. It doesn't try to reconcile all of these genres. It just allows them to sit. No, and it shifts. There are no chapter breaks. Nope. There's no headings. Nope. There's no point that marks the shift between when we are, have a retrospective narrative and when we have a journal account. And very frequently, so there's a point in the narrative when Crusoe is on the island where all of a sudden we're getting day by day, this is what happened. But in that day by day account, all of a sudden there's an intrusion of the retrospective narrator's voice commenting on things that the narrator, that the journalist at that time can't possibly have known about because he's saying things that happened right at the end of Crusoe's narrative. And so there's no attempt to Mm. smooth over those cracks mm. they're just there in conversation with each other seamlessly presented and it's up to the reader to sort out where what belongs and how to make sense of the different things that are assembled mm. there's all the farming almanacs you talked already about yeah. before, but there is yeah. a lot that's of stuff that's the thing that kills me about this <laughs> yeah that is kind of a how-to book yeah. about if you are ever actually stranded on a desert island if this should be in your if future. this should be something that ha- comes up for you this is what you should do here's what you should do here, these are the mistakes that i made i should never have done this um this is how you plant corn this is what happens when you sow it in this kind of soil or that kind of soil this is the kind of yield you can expect yeah, this, um, is, what this is how to store the grain properly and so yeah. that it doesn't get spoiled. So um, what happens if you leave it out in the rain? Oops. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of really practical advice. Struggling to overcome. I mean, you know, Crusoe, again, he, so one of the things about him is the way in which he's ultra, uber resourceful. You know, he can manufacture a pot. There's this lengthy section where he talks about, you know, he decides he needs a pot for cooking. He doesn't have the stuff that you normally make a pot out of, mm. so he has to improvise. He has to make stuff himself. Um, so he's really resourceful at being able to think about what something is, think it down to its essence, what needs to go into its manufacture, and then to learn the skills well enough to execute it himself. At the same time, he gets a helping hand. Yeah, the ship just happens to wash up with everybody else dead, mm-hmm. but still intact enough for him to be able to salvage a whole bunch of stuff yeah. from it. 
um, tools, food, weapons, ammunition, gold. Um, there is that wonderful scene where he kind of sees the gold on the boat and then he, he had this diatribe about the allure of gold and how terrible it is. And then he takes and the then gold. he's like, oh, <laughs> this gold might be handy. This might come yeah. useful down the track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he brings it in. And, 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 you know, so, I mean, but the, <clears throat> to return to my point, there's a lot of this practical advice. Um, there's the admixture of providential circumstance and resourcefulness. Um, it all kind of just merges, is, is kind of rolled together. And it really does, you know, make use of a lot of Defoe's knowledge that is accrued over his life. I mean, for somebody who hasn't ever been to sleep, um, his descriptions of what it's like to be in a storm at sea mm. um, are pretty evocative. And he and he so he writes about the desire to go to sea. Yes. In such a kind of, you know, heartfelt way, I suppose, even though it seems silly to use that word. Um, and also, um, you know, <laughs> the thing that kind of spins people's mind out. This is Robertson Kerr's back, you know. <laughs> well, he gets home and everybody He's so bored. He, <laughs> everybody that he knows. I mean, you know, kind of the idea, and I, again, from the adaptations that I remember, the idea is kind of he gets rescued, he goes home, this happens yeah, ever after. Yeah, celebration. <clears throat> but in Defoe's version, he gets home, everybody that he knew is dead. Yeah. <clears throat> um, except <clears throat> that he does have some money that has been wisely invested by a woman that he kind of by chance knew and had asked to look after some money for him. So we've got this store of money. Um, he gets married and has children, but then he goes off on further adventures. Even at the end of the first book, yeah. there are further adventures where he goes off to the continent and has various adventures. And then there's a whole the other book. Robinson Crusoe. There's a whole two other books. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah. that, that he writes afterwards because of the success of the first book. Um, Defoe goes off and, and says, great, that was a go, I'm, I'm going again. And he, 28 years by myself going so mad. Nothing. So, I mean, yeah, it's a... It is a strange beast, isn't strange it? Strange beast. We've completely run out of time and we don't have time to touch on my favourite Defoe, which is Mob Landers, so I'm going to ask you to come back and talk about Mob Landers at a later date because I'm always up for talking about good old Mole. We <laughs> get to talk about the Journal of the Plague Journal of the Plague Year, year. yes, or absolutely. I mean, Roxana or... Yeah, Roxana, so great. The tour in Great Britain. Damn it. <laughs> anyway, we'll get you back. There is so much to say about Defoe. We have just merely, merely scraped the surface. Thank you so much for that, Jeff. That was so great. Pleasure. Um, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. And if you have any comments um, or questions, please send them through at fromthelighthouse.org and we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks once again, Jeff. My pleasure. Thank you, Steph. Bye.